So I guess uh, poor one out for Larry King there, huh? Oh, did Larry King just die? Oh, I didn't, yeah, didn't see apparently. that. A couple hours ago, 87, I think, yeah. <laughs> Damn. I mean, I don't give a shit about Larry King. I know, he's not even worth a go. He's not even yeah. a bad guy. I can't even give him like, a crab <laughs> like, Are people really going online like, oh my god, we lost a real one today. How will we get through this? <laughs> I'm assuming it's... Uh, COVID related, yeah. but I don't know. I'm assuming Nancy Pelosi's already like doing the Wakanda arms. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he had COVID. Do y'all want local recording? No. Like a no, local file? No. Okay. okay. Good. I wouldn't know how to do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just like fucked with him and like made up like a, t a file type and be like, yeah, and obviously XZI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know the the, the 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 file format we all know and love. Yeah, I'd have found it. I'd have gotten it. Are amazing. All right, everybody. So welcome back to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, as always, and I'm here with Sterling. And tonight we have another special episode doing an interview. Uh, we have a couple comrades from the IWW here with us tonight. We have Armando, Bai, Kyle, and Ryan. And they're all members of the IWW, and they are here to talk to us about unions, union membership, what it's like to be in a union, and why you should be in a union, and also probably why you aren't already. Uh, we'll be getting into a little bit of the history of unions and uh, why the union membership is so abysmal. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about how that's affected work in America, why it's gotten us to the situation that we're in, why things are just so dismal for workers nowadays, and what we can do to fix that, hopefully. So we'll talk about union organizing and why you should try to organize your workplace if you possibly can. So let's start to get into a little bit of, I guess, background just about unions in general. Maybe we introduce the IWW first, and you guys kind of tell us a little bit about the organization to begin with, just so our listeners know what we're getting into. So just a quick point for clarification, Comrade Bai is actually a member of a union as well as he's a representative for PCUSA. Yeah, I'm a member of AFSME, the largest public sector employees union in the United States. I'm an officer, secretary, and then I'm also a uh, IWW member, Ohio Valley GMB. Cool. So would any of you guys like to give us just sort of a brief overview of the IWW? I think probably most of our listeners have at least heard of it, but may not be familiar with it firsthand. If you would like to just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So um, this is Ryan. One of the key things about the IWW is this idea of industrial unionism. And it really comes out of, you know, the 19th century when unionism was primarily focused around trades, specifically, you know, very isolated, uh, very contained groups of workers. Uh, usually exclusionary based on all kinds of different demographic information. So, you know, broken along racial lines, gender lines, and then further within those specific trades and specific crafts. Um, it wasn't until by the 1880s and moving into the 20th century where strikes and more militant labor unions started or militant labor unionism uh, came about that the effectiveness of taking direct action was severely limited due to these very, you know, this very balkanized, separate idea of unionism that existed in the 19th century in America. So a lot of the founders of the IWW in 1905, uh, which is when the union was formed, were primarily based along the experience of when workers strike. So for example, like in a mine in Utah somewhere, right? Like 
when those workers strike, right, they're very isolated from the larger forces of production that revolve around that specific mine. Uh, so, you know, the railroads, um, any sort of support for machinery, you know, the smelting plant that the ore or raw commodity would go to, right, all of those are connected to each other. Uh, but if miners strike, right, there's no real effect of that beyond its very specific location. So the IWW industrial unionism more broadly was saying, let's right, let's destroy these artificial boundaries between workers, either by sector, by race, by uh, religion, by gender. Uh, let's destroy these boundaries and focus on this idea of the one big union. And that is really like the, the defining idea of the IWW, which says that all workers in all sectors deserve a union, not merely for the purpose of defeating and you know destroying exploitation and capitalism, uh, but also as a core strategic idea of fighting against it. Uh, under the idea of the one big union, right, if the miners, the railroad workers, the machinists that provide the parts, the workers at the smelting plant where the ore goes to, if those miners needed to address a concern uh, or their exploitation, if all of those workers were under one banner of the one big union, they could all act in coordination with each other through direct action to achieve the necessary change from there. And it doesn't take too much of imagination to say that you could obviously see the strategic location or the strategic importance of something like that for one strike but how this could be applied even more broadly to a whole society and eventually to the destruction of the wage slave system in the United States. And that is the defining idea of the IWW as industrial labor unionism. Just very quickly, its particular historical context is significant because the process of change that had been happening with industrial unionism and that what Ryan was discussing, this sort of consolidation of various types of workers and of reimagining how workers can organize for self-determination was accelerating along the process of industrialization. Especially in the United States at the end of the 19th century, you start to see like the great upheaval happening uh, in the midst of all of these various economic panics. And then the First World War, as well as moving past the establishment of the IWW into the second decade of the 20th century, the German Revolution, and these various sort of like trade union-based elements that had come into existence at the same time as industrial production had begun to rise and consolidate itself in various sectors of manufacturing. And so as sort of the historical process, as capitalism was accelerating, consolidating, and growing throughout the end of the 19th century after sort of the high stages of European imperialism, you started to see workers in reaction to these consolidating elements of capital understand that, oh, well, shit, now we're all closer together. We see each other more often. We're in the same building. The popular imagination, the popular worker imagination, if you will, was shifting along the same lines as the process of production and change in the United States, largely as a response to these particular material conditions that organizations like the IWW and their partnerships that they had with the Socialist Party and the Socialist Labor Party uh, with Eugene Debs and Daniel DeLeon, respectively, and the sort of the power of the Western Federation of Miners was able to leverage alongside of these other new consolidating forms of industry. So it was a really exciting, very powerful time. It was the peak of worker power in the United States thus far the largest, most consistent opportunities for self-determination via direct action, via literal mine wars. It's an unbelievable period of American history. Yeah, that sounds based as hell. I wish we could go <laughs> back to that. I guess that's the goal, right? What do you got, Bye. 
Yeah, so I think it's, uh, when we're talking about the IWW, I think it's important to differentiate between the method of action in the IWW compared to something like a business union or a conventional trade union. The IWW, I mean, if you go to any organizing training in the IWW, they're not going to say, for instance, well, you start organizing your workplace, get your list, right? Start making a committee, keep it under the table for a while. Yeah, every union is going to say that, but then it's not going to say, well, then eventually bring in the NLRB so you can have a union vote to authorize the union. Now, there are some specific branches, of course, that do do that in IWW, and that's kind of like a kind of a topic of controversy and the union as a whole, but uh, they will typically say, create a point to march on the boss, or you confront them, I mean, direct action. That's like the the biggest difference between the conventional business union and the IWW kind of on the shop floor. As someone like myself, who's a dual carter and an officer in a, a conventional trade union, um, you can definitely see how the NLRB, the NLRA, uh, really create parameters around what you can and cannot do as a worker on the job. They give you more security having the collective bargaining agreement, but at the same time, what the IWW has always reiterated, and it's true in my opinion, is that strike power is you know the key weapon of a worker. And to relinquish your striking power, relinquish that ability to withhold your labor power is a grave problem um, in the modern labor movement. But I just kind of wanted to mention that the IWW thinks that you need to actively cultivate your union membership, your rank and file. There's not going to be a union leadership that's going to take care of things and let the machine kind of run autonomously with just a few people moving levers at the top, um, like a regular conventional union would do. The IWW emphasizes that you always got to be active or your union is going to fall apart in the shop. Yeah, so one of the key differences you're pointing out here with like the conventional union, you're saying, whereas with a conventional union, you would typically trade your ability to kind of strike for a vote and for basically the boss man to agree to coexist with the union itself, whereas the IWW is more about keeping that most important tool that you have at your disposal, which is, of course, striking. Or am I totally off base with that? Is that a fair assessment you think, Pi? There's an interregnum period between contracts. Uh, about three years is usually a regular conventional collective bargaining agreement. And uh, you can only do a strike without a contract. You can only do direct action without a contract. And that only happens within those interregnum periods. Now, there's always a possibility of the union membership voting down a contract, but that is increasingly rare um, in a conventional business union because a lot of workers don't really, if it's not like the IWW emphasizes, the workers are not cultivated, constantly brandished in the fire of struggle. There's going to be a type of complacency in that. And there's not going to be a lot of engagement even with even what the union is. Most of the time, if it's left to its own devices in a conventional union, it's going to be relegated to a mechanism to hold parties or events or something like that, so, you know, means to connect social services. So yeah, absolutely. You're uh, To go back to the question, yeah, you're absolutely right. But it's a little bit more uh, nuanced, I guess. Um, I'm someone that does don't want to completely throw out business unions and uh, conventional trade unions. I think they're very valuable. But yeah, that is a very key distinguishing factor, kind of like the what regulates your ability to strike. Brian, you want to talk about the no strike clause specifically? Yeah. So it was, you know, it was a way early on in, you know, unionism, especially from the 1930s to the 1950s, when, you know, there's this kind of purge of leftist elements within labor unions primarily. You know, to like essentially a lot of labor leaders were saying, you know, we can make material gains, right? We can establish stability. And, you know, it's a powerful message coming out of the Depression and World War II for a lot of workers, right? Like the idea of stability and to actually 
to be able to have some sort of material security. And of course, you know, this being America, it is promised to a very exclusive group of workers, but it's still, you know, the most basic power element of that, which was we're going to, you know, we're going to Americanize this bitch, right? We're going to legalize it. Uh, we're going to put it in contracts. We're going to create little mini little court systems and an adversarial relationship between the boss and the worker. And we're going to have these like good faith arguments over this. And, and then, you know, you're just going to be happy paying a little bit more in income tax and, uh, you know, buy a car and uh, that'll be it. And it gave up the idea of workers leading at their workplace, right? And I think what, the other key thing that it takes away from this is that not only do you give up the right to direct action, but you form a notion of, you know, trade or business unions uh, becoming service providers, right? Essentially just, you know, a, a group of union professionals that, you know, negotiate contracts, they handle grievance procedures, uh, they provide services to workers, and it loses the kind of direct connection, right? This idea that, you know, the workers should be the organizers. They should be the ones leading these types of movements moving forward. And that is primarily where we get into the 1950s and really the domination of, you know, business union contracts, the National Labor Relations Act, and then finally Taft-Hartley, which sticks the stake in the heart of the political work of unionism in this country. It just basically creates these institutions that are incapable legally in the United States from doing that. And, you know, the labor unions, in terms of power, um, have been fairly neutered outside of the very specific pen that they are kept in in our society moving. Now, that's interesting because you mentioned Taft-Hartley, and I have heard that once or twice before, but I never looked into it. And I'm surprised to hear it put that way because it shows to me that, you know, this kind of thing was happening even before Reagan, who is what I would typically blame for our current situation. You know, we've talked about it on our podcast. We typically attribute it to Reaganomics and the like hyper-atomization of everyone. Your boss likes nothing more than for you to be an individual to tell you to go find a better job if you don't like your wages and your working conditions, because that helps them because they can easily replace you with somebody else who will work for the wage that you don't want. It works out very well for employers and the owners of capital for everyone to just be individuals with no collective bargaining uh, powers whatsoever. But it obviously benefits workers if you have workers who have your own interest in mind as well as their own because you share interests and you want better wages and better working conditions to be able to have a union and be able to bargain against the bosses. You have power that way and that's the last thing they want to see you do. So you mentioned this Taft-Hartley thing. Would you say that that was what really got the ball rolling? Because that seems like a new starting point for me. I just always attribute it to the 80s and the rise of neoliberalism. Yeah, it separates. It prevents unions from engaging in politics in, in any sort of real fundamental sense, as we understand it as Americans, right, especially around electoralism. And, you know, for a lot of business unions and a lot of trade unions during this time period, if they're satisfied with this, and more importantly, a lot of the leadership of unions, you know, after the post-World War II era, you know, they're powerful. They're fucking playing golf with Kennedy and Eisenhower. They are ushered into the world of the elite by having a quote unquote seat at the table. And it's once again, you know what, I don't want to shit all over, you know, business unions in general, but there is a fundamental problem when you ask, what is the power that unions have and how do they use that power? And when we think, at least for me, right, when we think about why unions don't have an effect on our lives right now, why union rates are so low, it's because if someone is looking for an answer to the question of why am I disrespected by my boss? Why am I tolerating unfair and unequal and sometimes abusive treatment? It is because there is no way for me to express power in this situation, right? And the loss of power within unionism in this country points back to Taft-Hartley and the wider reforms that were occurring during that time period of what I would consider a service model of unionism primarily. And add in a slow degradation, you know, a slow decline, you know, through the 60s and 70s in our economic situation, and then factor in Reagan on a critical point in our nation's history in terms of its economy, and it sure as hell went the wrong way from there. Uh, the thing about Taft-Hartley 
And if any of your listeners aren't familiar, it was passed in the 40s, 1947, I think. It was basically a legal framework. It was a deal. Like, you know how in the Obama's first term, there was a proposed single payer option attached to Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And then in negotiations, a lot of that stuff got removed and replaced with essentially a version of the bill that was written by the Heritage Foundation or, (laughs) you know, literally like the Randy and shitheads, evil, evil (laughs) fuckers. Obamacare is terrible. Yes. It, this is a lot bigger than that, actually. I mean, healthcare is incredibly important, but this changed the trajectory of trade unions in the United States forever at that point. But it basically, it's like, we will give you a series of things that employers are explicitly not allowed to do, and that we're going to establish an organization to where you can file specific things. Your boss can't do X, Y, and Z. They can't prevent you from organizing or co-determination with your coworkers, for example. There's a few things that they can't do. In return... You have to put no strike clauses in your contracts. So basically, it was a mediating procedure from capital. In what Ryan said, like Ryan and I have both been members of big box unions, as I like to call them, business unions. There is an incredible amount of value to, I know a lot of people who are in core, the organization behind Karen Lewis that took over the Chicago Teachers Union and made it as why it's so radical as it is now. I think that's incredibly important. But the problem with business unions is that there was a legal framework that was created in exchange for their most, as you're saying, their most powerful tool, the strike. Now, during those times when you have a bargained and mutually agreed upon contract, you're not able to leverage your biggest tool to push back against those fuckers. And the reason why it ended up in there and looking the way that it did is, well, business interests were, of course, capital was in control of Congress, as well as the Republican Party of the mid-1940s. So... The negotiation process ended up trading one very, very important thing for another. And that's the argument that I think is fair in a lot of instances where our labor, the value that I bring to this business that I've affiliated myself, that I'm selling my labor for a wage to, I can't pull that away unless my employer does very specific things. So instead of us being able to just say like, fuck you, we're walking out. Now it has to fit within a particular framework that was ultimately a framework negotiated with and by capital. So it's created a lot of historical problems for us, uh, and we're trying to figure it out. You know. Also, one thing I'd like to point out is it not only has taken that tool away, it sounds like it's kind of taken it from you and given it to the employer because whereas at one point the workforce had the tool of striking and basically walking out. Now the employer has the tool, which is a gun to your head, which is unemployment if you do that. So it's not even really taking it off the board as much as it is turning it into the exact opposite thing it was meant to be, is what it sounds like to me. Yeah, the, reducing it to this idea of power yeah. is very, very helpful fundamentally, right? Yeah. yeah, it sounds like the goal was to make a bigger table for the workforce to come to but instead we accepted a deal where we can just choose a few members from the workforce to go sit at their table and hopefully talk them into helping us yeah i think that does a good job of sort of explaining the history of the iww and just how we got to be into this capitalist wet dream that we're in now where people are working for an app and you know everyone (laughs) is just a completely atomized individual with no collective power whatsoever and i mean you can see just that creates a straight line of how we got to this point where now you have billionaires who are making so much money off the labor of others with little to no regulation behind it and no power or recourse for anybody to do anything about it 
So I just want to get into, uh, I guess, our next segment of what we want to talk about with unions. So I think for most of our listeners, I assume most of them are on the younger side. And since most people in the country tend to be working in a service industry of some kind or another, I would imagine that most of our listeners are not in unions. And that being said, they've probably been exposed to the same anti-union propaganda that we've, I'm sure, all been exposed to. And I guess I wanted to ask you guys, like, what are your responses to some of the typical talking points that employers will use to discourage their employees from unionizing or organizing in any way? I guess the main two talking points that I've always seen are they bring up that unions cost dues. So there is a little portion of your paycheck taken away to fund the union. And they make it seem like that's such a a terrible thing. Like uh, it's in the same vein as the taxation is theft thing, where it's just obviously bullshit because you are getting something in return for your union dues. But then also... Our typical neoliberal society will frame it in this way uh, that you're losing choice or freedom belonging to a union. <laughs> I love that framework. It just applies to everything, whether it's healthcare, whether it's not having your taxes do anything other than fund war. It's freedom to not get anything in return for what you are already paying out. Um, so what would you guys say to those two typical talking points that union dues are evil and not having freedom of choice to not be in union is such a terrible thing? Um, I can take the easy one. The... Uh... <laughs> In terms of the dues issue, the easiest talking point to unions cost dues is like, first of all, no shit. Everything costs money. Very few things get the actual like tangible long term benefits that either a union contract or some form of collective bargaining or worker self-determination can get. It's not just about the cost. The really easy answer is just that you'll get that money back in the ability to negotiate for wages and that sort of a thing that it pays for itself. But I can have an Xbox now. (laughs) Well, like, (laughs) hey, if you want, like, I mean, we all have gigantic Steam libraries. What we need is time to use them. And like the reason why you don't take what the boss gives you or what they're offering most of the time and why you have to use power to instead negotiate or the things that you need instead of just saying, oh, thank you, please, may I have some more, is because that stuff always ends up either disappearing, getting sucked up into some other kind of expense. Someone gives you a wage, they're gonna cut your hours. Most of the time, like a a lot of sort of like small business tyrant types will talk about the guaranteed raises that you're supposed to have. They'll give you the first two, and then all of a sudden it's like they forgot. But since they frame themselves as your buddy, you feel guilty going and asking for those particular things that you need. All of it is a part of, you know, the real sort of like heady stuff is decoupling these sort of emotional impediments that have been placed on us by bosses and capitalism and stuff. And instead looking at the dollars and cents and the nuts and bolts of one, how do I get the things that I need in order to support myself, my family and my loved ones Two. What is the means and the process by which not only can I get that, not only can I guarantee that it sticks around, but also can I make sure that it is fairly done as in my other coworkers get it as well? Well, that's unionization. The dues pay for themselves. They really do. It is an important sort of like theoretical question, if you will, is like, is this worth it? In my opinion, having organizing conversations and letting people know not just the stakes of what they're getting into, but also the possibilities for it have made it to where the dues conversation is, it goes without saying that this thing is going to be worth it. You can tell that it pays for itself. One thing I've always thought about with union dues, you know, because obviously a successful business in our country is, is basically based on how much profit can either be extracted from your workforce or from your consumers. You really only have two places to extract it from. And 
if that money's going to be extracted from me one way or another, whether it's going into some shareholder's pocket or into union dues, I think one thing that's very important to keep in mind is when that money is going into union dues and going into a union in general, you got to think, you're now supporting and, and paying for people who work for these organizations who are fighting for the work. Like If my money's going to go somewhere, I feel like I'd, I'd much rather it was going to people who are actually out here fighting for us. Yeah, I mean, it's the typical dishonest criticism of unions to begin with. It's exactly like when they say that, you know, Medicare for all can't work because it's going to cost more. And they always leave the important part out. They'll say, oh, well, it's going to cost you like an extra 4% of your salary per year. <laughs> and what they neglect to tell you is that it's going to save you the 20% of your salary yep. that you would spend if you got sick and actually needed to go to the hospital for something. So it's a bald-faced lie, but just one that most people are indoctrinated against even seeing the truth behind. So that covers that portion of the, uh, the criticism, I guess. Would you say that you guys have lost any freedom by being in a union or would you say that you have more freedom because you are in union? Do you feel like you guys are missing out on any choice that you uh, otherwise would have if you weren't in a union? I'm someone that has been organizing for years and I, you know, I do the more conventional type of organizing. I go and visit people in their homes. I talk to them and their families. I sit down with them. They express their struggles and their grievances with me. Building that community is extremely important. And, you know, a really effective way of uh, getting people to, I don't know, sign a union card as an established union or to become an IWW member to get your red card, I've always found was saying, look, are you satisfied with the wages and benefits you have? And there is no one except for one person, sorry, one person that said they are satisfied with their wages and benefits. And at that point, I said, there's nothing I can say to you. All right, go ahead. <laughs> but everyone's going to say they're not satisfied. And then you're going to say, what is your recourse for this? How do you redress your grievances? Are you going to walk up to the supervisor on Monday and say, hey, could you please give me a raise? They're going to laugh you out of the room. Like, it's, it's absurd to think that they would even listen to you for a second. The assumption yeah. to think that the, and I, and I deal with this all the time, especially in grievance procedures and in organizing in general, but the, uh, the consistent form of still applies. But workers have this idea because they're so good hearted. We're, we're good hearted folk. You know, I deal with the salt of the earth type of folks. I'm definitely the youngest union officer we've ever had in our local. And I hear them. They think that the university cares for them. They think that their administration, and their supervisor cares their lives. You know, they say, oh, they couldn't ever do this to me. Right. They, you know, they would hang their heads in shame. It's almost like if there was like a moral weight. They think that uh, the boss is going to fall under the burden of. And that is absolutely <laughs> wrong. Once they realize at a grievance hearing that they got terminated, it shocks them. Right. So everyone like the most effective thing is like, do you really think boss gives a hill of beans for you or for your family or for your coworkers? Because they will fire you once you either get older and all used up want to pay you any more benefits or any of the gains that you've gotten for yourself or for your coworkers. As soon as that they're able to, once you have a vulnerability, they're going to strike. And then, uh, like I mentioned before, if you say, you know, are you satisfied your wages and benefits? What are you going to do about it? You got to join a union. You got to have everybody on board and you got to do it unified at one voice. The thing that Eugene Debs failed to account for, though, is if what if I want to give my boss a big old hug and a kiss? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I just want to speak to this fucking idea of choice too, right? Like, I agree, you have a choice. Your choice is between one of the most humiliating experiences in American life, which is going in alone to your boss and asking for a raise. And the other choice is we go in together and ask for a fucking raise, right? Like, that's your choice. And when I am in these organizing conversations, I say that, like, you said you want better wages, you said you want better treatment. What I want you to do is go into that office alone and ask for that. Just ask for it and tell me how you feel after that experience. And then let me know if you want me to come in with you next time so that we can ask it together. 
And that way, just laying it out there. And, you know, from someone who's asked for raises before, it's terrible. It was horrible for a little teenage Ryan to go out and do that at their first job. You know, it was, it was disgusting. And it, it made me feel... I mean, most jobs don't even have that ability. Like you just don't have the ability to even ask for a raise because now that it's all been reduced to periodic evaluations, yep. where it's already a set amount of time. It's every six months, it's every year you get an evaluation and they basically sit you down and tell you what How things you they did. found that they can, yeah, what excuses they can find to not give you the raise that you should be entitled to. And it basically just means that you are on your toes every day that you're working there because you know that someone is watching to find something they can put in a little checkbox to make sure that you get less of a raise than you would hopefully uh, expect to get when that evaluation comes around. Uh, did you have something, Armando? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like one of the life traps that a lot of people fall into is like this idea that, you know, your boss can also be your friend. You know, he has his own self-interest. Yep. His entire purpose is there to make money for himself, you know, be able to support his family, just like the reason that you're working there. Mm -hmm. So like thinking that you can go into this like situation and be like, oh, hey, uh, this person actually cares about me. We, uh, we have a conversation here and there. You know, we, we joke around. No, uh, he doesn't give a fuck about you. Realistically, the only thing he cares about is lining his pockets and being able to, you know, take that profit back to his house. You know, I had a situation recently, um, actually just like last year to where, you know, my annual review came up and guess what happened? <laughs> they tried to give me a 50 cent raise. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> guess guess what I did? I told them I, I directly marked Show them them where they could put it. <laughs> you can <laughs> <laughs> like, this is what I do for you. This is what we all do. This is completely unfair for you to even attempt to undercut any of us. And I started, you know, talking to my uh, fellow workers at that point in time and attempting to get them all to, you know, fight for themselves and fight for, you know, what they felt they deserve. That's really all it is. I mean, <laughs> American labor is some of the bloodiest shit that we've actually ever experienced in this country. And that's some of that. that honestly, that's the truth. I mean, you've had people uh, within the IWW, I mean, even in some cases like the AFL, CIO, whatever. But <laughs> for the most part, like you have people who are willing to put their bodies, their lives on the line to fight for their fellow workers. And that's the only thing that really matters. You know, having them fight against the police, uh, having them fight against like the National Guard and like what comes to mind is like a great railroad strike, like, oh, what was it, 1877? To where they were fighting directly against the police, you know, uh, private militia, the S National Guard, et cetera, all in the name of capital. That's why it's always funny to me when people are always trying to refer to like uh, police and unions and like being a part of like the labor force. No, they're fucking class traders. They are not a part of us. They serve the interests of capital because that's literally all they're doing is oppressing us. They're one of the many facets of the, the wings of armed oppression like within the state. Yeah, I think that gets onto a good point, which is just the overall structure of capitalism and the perverse incentives that lie behind it and, you know, the contradictions. Workers have different incentives than employers. Those incentives are completely at odds with each other. And this is almost an inevitable point that we're at. You know, if it wasn't for Taft-Hartley, it would have been some other piece of legislation soon after that would have done the same thing. If it wasn't for Reagan, some other politician or president would have come along after him and push us into the era of neoliberalism and make everybody an individual with no power behind them whatsoever. So that's just kind of the overarching theme that we're getting at is that this is how capitalism works. This is the contradictions at work. And this is what it looks like for you as a worker. I liked one of the points Ryan was getting at right there. Or Sorry, this may have been Armando that was making the point. But employers also, the way that corporations structure themselves, they have so many tiers of leadership. You know, your manager has a manager, his manager has a manager. There's so many tiers that whoever is your direct leadership is likely got the same gun and threat of unemployment to him that you have. 
Yeah. So it's not only that he wants to lie in his pockets, it's that he's in this with you in a lot of ways too. And he's facing the same fears and he's facing the same opportunities of, of not being able to pay his mortgage and feed his family. So he's having to do the dirty work for the people above him. It's like basically picking out one of us and turning us against the others is really what these hierarchical corporations are. And even to take it further, small businesses, you know, so many small businesses I feel like are against unions because they feel like, oh, if I have to pay my employees more money, I'm just never going to survive it. But I always thought that they should look at the bigger picture, which is that just because you own a business does not mean you own an industry. You may technically have a piece of paper that says this business is yours, but there are still larger businesses above you and everything they do impacts your work. So if the Ford dealership down the road is not paying their employees more, it's completely affecting that entire industry and limiting your ability to make a better profit as a small business and in turn pay your employees more. And I feel like it starts very high up and it's very strange that even small businesses can't see that. Oh yeah, I mean, it's one big shit sandwich and everyone's eating it from the bottom to the top. That's one of the things I run into if you try to explain to people that there is no ethical consumption and you tell them, like, do you really want to wear clothes that are made by some sweatshop labor from some little kids in a, in a far off country? And they're like, no, but what choice do I have? And that's exactly the situation that everyone is in. Like, you don't have any choice but to participate in this system. And that's what really destroys the argument from capitalists when they say, oh, well, just get a better job. Just do X or Y better for yourself. And that changes nothing about the overall system. That doesn't help anything overall except maybe help your condition in some small way but it does nothing to change the overall condition that we're all living under. But you had something, Armando? Yeah, just to kind of add to that. I mean, that's one of the issues that we have like with you know worker cooperatives. They're still exposed to the same market system. They're still going to be competing in some way, shape or form. So in the end, you're still going to have like the same forms of like exploitation. Yeah, sooner or later, you're going to have to do something unethical or you will go out of business. You really don't have any kind of choice. So I wanted to get into our next bigger section, which is just how unions work in practice and why people who are listening to us should want to be in a union. Most likely, like I said, they are not. They're probably working service jobs or some other kind of job that doesn't have a union because most jobs don't. I'd say the vast majority of jobs do not have union membership or even the option for union membership. So what are some things that you've seen where unions have explicitly helped people and how they're better off with a union than without? So if I can get you guys just to go around the table and talk about like, how unions have worked in practice to help either you or people that you know, and just talk a little bit about that if you could. Yeah, talking about the question of why, so I mean, it's really simple. Uh, the boss is organized, everyone knows that. The boss has their little meetings just as much as uh, if any conventional union is gonna have their membership meetings or what have you. And they're meeting about how to better exploit the working class, obviously, their own workers and their employees. There is yes. one way, and it's, this has been exhibited throughout history, concerted action amongst you and people with like interests. There is no other way to win any sort of conflict with someone that's adversarial to you. You know, yeah, you could do maybe theoretical analysis and all that stuff, but really it just comes down to there's only one way to get anything that you want from an adversary, and that is to get together with people with like interest and then to overpower them. And that just comes down to the great death struggle of labor and capital that eventually collapses on itself. I mean, what I've noticed, workers aren't really that interested in even that type of language. It's almost too confrontational. It depends on what industry you're in. Me, I'm a custodian. Uh, a lot of folks worked in my job for 30, 35 years. Uh, they've been doing it for a long time. So they don't necessarily like adversarial language. But at the same time, I say, and it's good to play off the, almost the traditional moral value of the working class, because I think morally the working class is far more superior than anyone that's uh, wealthy. 
and you say you appeal to yes. that, that moral compass that's in the worker and say it is your moral duty to care about your neighbor to love your neighbor and uh, if you don't join your union you're not doing that maybe that sounds weird it's not good for us marxists right to talk about morality or, or any abstract idea like that but um <laughs> but at the same time you would be surprised how far that goes <laughs> because if you want to there's not a lot of folks that want to say look coldly towards their coworker, right? Or say that I don't care or give a damn what happens to them. Most working class folks, they have an innate tendency. I've seen this and it shocks me and surprises me and moves me every time I experience it. They have an innate tendency to love other people, to take care of their own. And, uh, and that's the only chance we workers have. And I think that that's, I don't know, that's a very powerful thing. And it may not just be theoretically complex, but it's powerful for lots of folks. I really like that one. It's kind of like, even as a man, I believe that my female employees should be able to have paid leave during a pregnancy and, you know, several months uh, afterwards. Yeah, I think it actually is a really good point. Like, as much as you may say that, you know, morality may not be part of Marxism as we tend to understand it, but I feel like, like I tend to say that most people are Marxists and just don't realize it yet. I feel like most people yep. realize that the system that they're living in goes against their innate sense of morality and they just participate in it because they have no other option. Like everyone just kind of knows on a gut level that things are fucked up, that they have to do fucked up things and they don't like it, but they just don't see any other option and they can't even imagine any other alternative because we've been indoctrinated not to. Mine's raised up a very beautiful point about labor organizing in general. And, and it's, I'll speak for myself, you know, I'm overeducated and it's a place where you, you know, you got to put the fucking book down at some point, right? And you have to like go out into the world and find yourself in the battlefield uh, you know, where labor and capital meet, and it is at your workplace. I will tell you what is like striking, and device point is absolutely correct. People will surprise you. People's ability to understand their situation, people's innate dissatisfaction with the way they're treated on the, at work primarily, and their feelings around their exploitation. There's nothing better than reaching out to someone in a sense of true democracy, right? Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a leftist because I honestly want what's best for people and like normal people, which I feel like I would be included in that. Yep. And when you go out and you reach out to other people and you do so with a sense of humility and an earnest desire to want to work together to change something for the better, people surprise you. It is something very shocking. And we at the IWW, we believe in worker-led movements. We believe in worker-led unions. And when we look around and, you know, to the rank and file, right, when we look to our left and our right and we see people in the same struggle that we are at, and we come to them and ask them to join us. I think that is in a pure sense what we think democracy should be like. And it is only when we realize that and see it, the benefit of it is because we realize that the electoral participatory democracy that we have in this country is lacking in that very essence. And I think that that's part of the key thing from when we talk about why and how unions should function and what benefits they can have. It is in building, and dare I say it, a true living solidarity among working people, regardless of it's within this country or others. Do you have something, uh, Kyle? Yeah, just very briefly. Um, I think there is an ethical framework within Marxism, and it works within the same context as both the philosophical parts of Marxism, which remember Marx was trained, he was trained in philosophy, which means he was trained in classics, yeah. which like, mm. you know, same, not to brag, uh, <laughs> but I'm also very overeducated like Ryan, but <laughs> What's most meaningful about this type of ethics, this type of worldview, if you will, is that what it does is it takes into account not just the individual material circumstances and the way that they work within their various historical contingencies, your context, time, place, et cetera, the type of person who we are, but also that there's a path forward from this 
that can account for each of our individual struggles and questions we have about our place in the world and our understanding of who we are as people. And that incorporates it unto a multitude of other similar experiences of alienation, of disenfranchisement, and of the general abject cruelty of our contemporary moment. What matters about what we're doing in union organizing is that it is giving people the framework and the understanding to determine for themselves why they belong and are a worker and a member of the working class. And then a very simple instinctual, like the, what Ryan was talking about, like this framework, it makes sense to people because people understand their own experiences. What's a better way to bring people together than a universalizing, like, understanding where you are in the world in terms of capital's relationship with each and every one of us and its insertion into the very intimate private spaces of our lives like it is not moral that you feel anxious every time your phone buzzes because you think you're going to get an email from work that is not Seriously. a that is not a moral <laughs> way of living i cannot give myself to that armand is trying to talk and i'm going to ramble forever because i I'm a historian. We're literally professionals. <laughs> Go ahead, Armando. All right. Perfect, Conrad. I appreciate it. I mean, you know, a lot of us here on the left, uh, us Marxists, us Marxist-Leninists, et cetera, we're all overeducated when it comes to this. Like, we're all overread. But realistically, for us to claim to be communists, like the entire portion of what it means is to actually put that theory to action. Yeah. Theory is your guide to action. It's your political compass. It's basically what's supposed to guide you to mobilizing and, you know, getting uh, the working class into the point to where they can actually like take advantage of collective unionization fighting against the ruling class. We have so many people who are stuck in like their Reddit K-holes to where like realistically, you know, they're <laughs> waiting for these idealistic, perfect, utopian like uh, parties to show up. But in reality, I mean, that's never going to happen. There's no gold standard when it comes to organizing. The only thing you can really hope for is getting your experience, working with fellow workers, uh, comrades, whatever you want to refer to us as, like getting out there and <laughs> putting your bodies on the line with us, man. That's the only way you can actually like learn anything. You can't just sit there playing armchair theorist. You have to actually go out, try and organize, go out into your local communities. There's actually, um, talking about quotes, there's a quote from one of the Black Panther Party, actually, when asked where to start when organizing. Initially, he said, basically, just walk out your front door, you know, look to the left, look to the right, you know, look in front and look in back and just pick a side and go. And I mean, that's really all you have to do. Just get out there, start talking to people in your communities, you know, start talking to your fellow workers in the workplace and just figure out like what exactly it is that you can do. Put that theory to action. Um, that's pretty much all I had to say. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really good. That really is what it comes down to. Like, we can sit here all day, we can have our podcast, we can argue with people online, and we can post a bunch of memes or do whatever the hell we want. But if nobody's <laughs> taking the direct action, if no one's actually doing the practice, it really doesn't amount to much. So, yeah, radicalizing people is great. Getting people to see that their alternatives is great. But it really does come down to doing the work. Did you have anything else that you wanted to say, Bias, before we uh, move on to something else? Um, the boss is going to be your best organizer because they're going to do something so craven and depraved. You know, I deal with pretty old school type uh, uh, working class folks here in uh, rural Ohio, and uh, they've been in unions. They know about unions and, and they don't ask for much. You know, they almost kind of being heavy burdened is a, is a type of virtue in the minds of a lot of workers around here. Like you work hard for your family. You worked, you know, all the way through it. You didn't ask for much. You didn't complain. But when they 
think that that just very small, marginal, you know, kind of desire that they have to feed their family, to have a better life for their children. Once the boss violates that, which they inevitably will do, they'll realize that there is nothing left but to fight against him. Good point. Did you have something, Ryan? Shit, yeah, man. Like, don't be afraid, right? Like, when you go out in there, um, you're going to make mistakes. You know, don't worry if you've got the right praxis. I, you know, to be honest, I don't even know what that word means, right? But I think we have to, like, you used it, right? to take a stand and to, I mean, if you, if you believe these things, right? Like, if you believe these values, don't be afraid to reach out to a group of people or to different parts of your community that you've never reached out to before. I will tell you this, that some of the strongest people I've ever met in my life, one was, you know, was a 70-year-old bus driver, and she is amazing, and she has more grit and determination than a lot of people I've met in my life. And it's those types of relationships that you will construct and you will build that nothing will prepare you unless you go out and seek those connections and those ways in which you can find people in your community to back you with those. There's just no other way to find it. And you don't need to say the right things. You don't need to have read all the books. You just get out there and you find a way in which you can communicate to people what you want to do and why you're doing it and ultimately asking people to trust you. And it's fucking terrifying asking someone to trust you and to have them put their trust in you. But if you are earnest and honest about that and you don't misuse it or abuse it, you can build something from that that becomes meaningful and powerful and ultimately shows people that there is another fucking way to do this, that there is a way to overcome this stagnant hellscape that we find in our working lives. And be plain spoken, be honest with people. And to be frank, right, like one of the founders of the IWW, Big Bill Haywood, he had a great saying. He said, I've never read Marx's Capital, but I have the marks of capital all over my body. And there are millions of fucking people in this country with the marks of capital all over their bodies. And you find them and you find your own scars and you find a way to share those stories with each other. And that's ultimately what organizing is all about. Yeah, that's really good. What's up, Sterling? Two things. Uh, one, Praxis, just in case you are actually interested in the definitions, it's extremely simple. It's just simply the action of enacting practice. If you believe you should be out in the streets doing something, Praxis is being out in the streets doing something. Two, it's kind of all the same as what Chris uh, Hilali was saying when we had him on for the interview. He was talking about being a communist, and he's like, just get out there. He's like, I get out there and I farm, and I help the other farmers in my community. And he's like, nothing is more impactful than actually getting out there with people who don't really know what communism is, and you're helping them and then telling them you're a communist. I feel like that's a lot of kind of what you guys are saying is just get out there and do literally anything, even if it's the smallest thing and work from there. You know, sitting behind your keyboard on Twitter really doesn't do shit. Like that's one reason with our podcast, we try to bring in some of these theories and topics that we think are in some ways introductionary because we don't want to get so far down the fucking ultra you know, communist rabbit hole that we just sound like a bunch of fucking sentient Che Guevara shirts fucking jacking <laughs> each other off, you know? What you got there, Kyle? I just wanted to very briefly, all this is really, really important. If you're having trouble picturing yourself as a part of an historical movement of working class people for change, and you're in the United States and you want to read about the amazing things that working people in the most abjective conditions have done, read a book called Hammer and Ho by the historian Robin Kelly. Very readable, an incredibly talented historian. Um, but really what I wanted to say is that a very brief story, I got my bachelor's degree from the University of South Florida in Tampa, and they've been organizing with Faculty Florida, which is essentially an adjunct union organizing drive that has 
seeing new adjunct unions pop up at a whole bunch of different places all around the state. Uh, really, really important and good stuff happening there. There's one story at USF that always really impacted me, and it's an adjunct professor named Robert Ryan, who I didn't have personally, but he taught English. He was a beloved member of his community and had been teaching at USF for years and years and years. Then he got cancer. Robert didn't have health insurance, um, so he had to keep teaching. The note that's burned into my brain is he had to keep teaching, even has tumors filled his mouth and made it impossible for him to speak. Um, and then he died in the middle of their organizing campaign. He was 62 years old and he died without health insurance. I don't care how we fucking do it. Either being motivated by the working people who have been murdered by the selfish, inhumane economic mode of production that we have, or if you're looking to prevent things happening to the people in your life that happened to Robert, you don't know when a Robert Ryan's going to appear in your workplace. Why wait? Because the pain, it's already there. A lot of it is lying under the surface. A lot of people are looking for a space and a person through which they can express some of the most embarrassing and humiliating parts about their life. And that's because the world we live in does that on purpose. They try to make you feel bad for being poor. They try and make you feel like you did something wrong. You didn't work hard enough. And it's all fucking crap. Because like, think about it. How much gritting have you really been doing since like, I started like hawking pizzas in an arcade when I was 14. That's when I started working and I have not stopped working. And like, I'm tired of being told that I'm selfish after I bust <laughs> my fucking ass. Like, I, I remember one time I was working at Panera Bread Company and I said, hey, so I went to Starbucks and they offered me a buck 50 more. So I'm going to go work there in two weeks. I actually really like working here, though, because it was one of the better service industry jobs I had where I didn't feel like shit all the time. The managers respected me a little bit. So they give you the good shifts and you do your best. And she's like, fuck, OK, I'll see what I can do. So she went to the owner and the owner of the franchise apparently said, give him a dime. And uh, yeah. So I, uh, how was it working for in, Panera Bread for another year? <laughs> yeah, I, I stopped working there very quickly. <laughs> and I said to my manager, who was, again, all, for all intents and purposes, a good person, oh. uh, I said, you can tell, insert owner's name here, where she can take her dime and, and put it. <laughs> and then I'm going to go, I'm going to go somewhere else. But it's just like, that's a small capture of like, it's everything from like, I'm so fucking tired of being anxious when rent comes due. My university education was traumatizing because of the amount that I had to work. It really was. And I'll, I'll have to shut up, but there's profoundly moral stakes. Like there are human lives that are at stake here. And when people say it's hyperbolic, all you got to do is bring your fucking receipts because they're there. This fucked up shit that people say in union organizing campaigns, the stuff that we are, as we say, inoculating people against. We're telling you that stuff because it's happened to people before. Small business owners who just decide to shut down their entire business because a union goes public. That happened to our branch. So like, don't wait. The time to start is now. It's going to take a while, but just don't wait because you don't know what could happen. Well, I mean, that's really good. And I think that definitely covers why people should want to be in a union. I feel like the benefits are obvious. You know, our audience is mostly going to be leftists of all stripes, you know, Marxists and everything. So they should, at the very least, understand that unions are better than not being in a union. And I think you guys have made it very clear that unions offer some benefits that not being in a union simply does not. But I think that's also sort of getting us into our next thing that I wanted to cover, which is what can people actually do? And I think you guys already have started to cover this as far as Praxis is concerned. 
you bring up a good point, Kyle. People who work at Starbucks or Panera Bread or any other kind of service job, maybe you guys can educate even me a little bit because I'm not entirely sure about this. I know that people who aren't in a union and don't have the option to join a union at their job can still sometimes join the IWW. Now, what are the restrictions on that? And who is able to join the IWW and who is not? Like, can people who work at Starbucks join the IWW? Can people who just work at a grocery store or something, can they join the IWW? Like, who can and who cannot? Because I feel like many people probably just don't know whether they can. And there probably are a lot of people out there who can and just don't realize that they could be in a union if they just wanted to. And then beyond that, if they can't, what else can they do to help? Obviously, trying to organize their workplace is a big thing. And there are definitely steps to be taken for that. I know that most unions have pamphlets, if not entire books, about how to go about organizing your workplace, you know, step-by-step manuals on how to do that. But beyond that, what else can people do if they just want to help the union cause? Before we even talk about going out and, uh, you know, just unionizing, just talking to folks, um, sharing stories like Comrade Ryan was saying. But basically, we first need to understand why we want to organize or be a union organizer. A union organizer needs to have They need to do it for service, right? They need to be a servant. Definitely, I've noticed this a lot on um, the left. There's a lot of folks that join unions to push almost an ideological line, and that's fine. But workers, like a common, regular, normal person, right, that doesn't spend their life in politics like us, is not going to worry about uh, any of those ideological lines. They're going to seen as someone that's an outsider. You need to be a servant. You need to be authentically concerned about their lives, and you need to be authentically wanting to almost diminish yourself so that you can raise those people up. That's first and foremost needs to happen. And that is going to put you maybe even in some situations that are going to maybe cause you to capitulate a little bit with your ideological commitments. And and, and that's okay. And I think that's necessary. But basically, legally, anyone can join a union. Obviously, the IWW, anyone can join a union as long as you're not a boss or a landlord. And concertive activity on the job is actually protected, believe it or not. So you would have some grounds legally to win any court case or what have you that a management would bring against you if you did do that. But really just what I've always started doing, if any job that I get, I actually talk to my coworkers, not even about organizing, right? That comes a lot later. You don't want to do that first thing. But you want to say like, hey, man, you know, work sucks today, right? Like, damn, let's do this together. Let's work on this task together that's very, very hard. And let's just learn about each other. That type of personal aspect is very, very important. Building friendship, building trust, and then being a servant for the poor and the oppressed people of the world is absolutely necessary. So, yeah, there's, you know, many ways that you can do it. Being a good listener is, you know the best skill that you could have to be a union organizer. Um, You can read all the books, do all the OT trainings. But really when it comes down to it, uh, start just talking to your coworkers and do tasks together at work. That always helped me. If I could just build on that as well, everything uh, I said is absolutely correct. And forming a union, when you look at like, uh, you know, the Department of Labor website or you you look at unionizing in general, especially if you go or are presented with the, you know, contract model, um, it does seem insurmountable and you like you don't have enough that you aren't capable because you don't have the tools to do it. But forming relationships and the color source organizers, but for God's sakes, just being organized, right? The boss is instituting a policy that you know affects you negatively and your working life negatively, it obviously affects other workers as well. And if you are already in communication, right, that first step of unionizing is forming those relationships and working with each other and building and establishing that trust. Once you have that, you are organized. You don't need an NLRB election. You don't need to move that way. When you are working together to improve your working conditions, you are a union. You don't need a fucking piece of paper from the US government to say you're a union. And we at the IWW, when we talk about what we call solidarity unionism, this is the type of unionism we have in mind, one that is directly connecting workers to workers, acting in a concerted and organized fashion 
for their own interests. In any way that you can apply that essential idea to your working conditions or where you work, you are a union. And so much can grow out of that. You know, I may take a little bit different tack when it comes to, you know, the internal dynamics we have at the IWW. You know, workers choose the way that they proceed with how they organize a union at their workplace. I really fundamentally believe that we should facilitate that and give them options and provide as much training and education as possible. But how a worker, how a group of workers takes that dynamic as a group, that is their decision to make. So moving forward, just find yourself in acting together to improve your working conditions. And it doesn't even need to come with the label of a union, right? You don't need to have to go to that formal recognition. As long as you are acting together, that's the key thing. And any way that you can do that, that's the most important. You can be as political as you want, as long as you're willing to put the work in and show that you're in solidarity with those people. That's really the most important thing. That'll speak volumes to a lot of working class people who are out there sweating their dicks off on a daily basis, you know, especially here in the Florida sun, you know, (laughs) that's some of the most important things. And like some probably like one of the most important like advice I could possibly give is just, you know, it doesn't matter what your politics are, just show them that you're there in solidarity with them working. A lot of people don't really want to hear somebody lecturing at them being like, oh, well, I read this book. So this is what I'm going to tell you what you should do because I read it here. (laughs) No, show them and lead by example. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. That's funny because that's, you know, again, like Sterling said, that's what we talked about with Chris the other night. He was just saying how it really is just down to making one-on-one connections with people, making connections in your community, and then showing them that this is what you're actually about once you've earned their trust, once you've built relationships with these people. Because if you go around just being like that asshole who says, oh, you're a racist, oh, you're this, you're that, and like calling people bigots and standing on your high horse of morality because you are a leftist and you are woke and you know better than everyone what they should be believing because you are enlightened. You're not going to win over anyone. You're not going to bring anybody to our side. In fact, you're going to entrench them further in their beliefs because you're only going to offend them when in reality you should be trying to reach them on a class level and get them to understand what they're really up against and who's putting them in that situation. Just be humble. Just be humble. Who would have thought that Kendrick Lamar had the best advice? You know, Sit the fuck down. Be humble. (laughs) To sort of like bring all of this together... Say you work in a service industry, like a chain, a local franchise or something like that. Like you're not at a workplace that is a part of the United Food and Commercial Workers or Unite Here. Like we're in the Orlando area. So there is lots of service industry unionism, but it's all at Disney and it's all Unite Here. And all of our members, basically all of our members live in either central and then the eastern and the northern side of Orlando because that all of that stuff is set way, way down south. To say like you're in that kind of a situation, it doesn't seem like there's a framework for unionization for your workplace. Well, first of all, there is because that's you. But second of all, there are ways to start to put all of the stuff that we have been saying into practice. And if you want to do it through the IWW, first of all, also no cops, by the way, you can't, you can't be a cop. Um, yeah. I, think I think that's the only thing we missed. Uh, So yeah, very good. We like that. No landlords and no bosses. But if you're real jobs, (laughs) yeah, basically, like (laughs) only people who actually do things that contribute. No class traders. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Well, you're welcome in the IWW. You can sign up online if you go to IWW.org. There are instructions for you to sign up. Once you do, there are organizer trainings. We call it. OT 101. There's OT 101 going on right now that uh, a bunch of our members are in. It's going really, really well, considering it's all on Zoom right now. But uh, there are specific organizer training that you can go to through the national IWW. Even if there's not a branch in your area, you can still do all of this. 
you can participate in those trainings and basically it will walk you through and give you the practical sort of day-by-day -day process of organizing your workplace. And to that, I just want to briefly talk about on the branch side, first conversation to public trajectory, real simple stuff. Our branch had a campaign go public this past August. Uh, hello to the seeds. We love you dearly. Where uh, So when we first had a conversation with this group of workers who worked at a place called the Dandelion Community Cafe, we had our first conversation in October of 2019. Uh, myself and a mutual friend of Ryan and I, a guy named Mike, who's an organizer for the National Nurses Union in Seattle now, sat down with a couple of workers from this cafe to talk about some shit that was going down and some problems that they were having. Basically, after that, what happened is in... Ryan's capacity as our organizing department liaison, which is basically the branches go between for active organizing campaigns and on the branch side of things, Ryan and as well as our deputy uh, secretary treasurer um, started putting on trainings, meeting regularly with individuals in the workplace. We met with four people originally, one of those people quit. So we had three um, and Ryan basically put in the long leg work of teaching them how to be organizers. And then in doing that, during that process, they are organizing their workplace having conversations and bringing more people in. And then what we do is train them because that's the thing about being in the one big union. We're all organizers. So we all get the same training. We all learn the same stuff, but we're all on the same page. And then we as a branch would come into Discord and give them suggestions for things. And then they would make choices and then we would help them walk that forward. So it was about advising, education, and then assisting them in the practical needs that they had during their campaign. That campaign ended up going public sooner than we imagined in August of that next year. And then the thing that I have always connected with about union organizing, I've been involved in politics for a long time and everyone comments on my YouTube videos and says I look 20 and 40 at the same time. Uh, I'm, I'm in my 30s. <laughs> it's accurate. I, I'm in my 30s. I've been <laughs> politically active since I was a teenager because I was a snotty punk kid um, and I got into anti-Iraq war politics. But I never... It sounds like I'm being an evangelist. I was also raised by evangelicals, but I promise I'm not proselytizing. This is the honest to God's truth about my experiences. The coherency of the goals and the practical way to build lasting, sustainable power and benefits and gains for working people that can move beyond me individually through a series of principled, volunteer-based, outreached, incorporative-like processes. Building something that's lasting, good for working people. Labor organizing is none of the other political work I've ever done. Elections, advocacy work, ballot initiative stuff, like none of it amounts to how much labor organizing makes me feel like this is a gain I can make. These are things that I can do. And there's a path toward it. It's literally, there's a book and it's a hundred pages long. And you read that book and then you do these things and then you do a union. It's so coherent. And politics can be so messy in our contemporary, weird, capitalist, realist, there is no alternative, like restricted imagination. I can, oh, I can go fuck shit up just with a couple of my coworkers. Let's do it. It just makes too much sense. To compartmentalize, you know, what a lot of you guys are saying here, just to make sure to, you know, oversimplify it for some of our listeners who are not as overeducated as everyone on here, like myself. For the undereducated <laughs> like myself, <laughs> it sounds like whereas joining a normal classic style union, you're kind of joining that organization directly and, and working with them directly. But joining the IWW is more in terms of joining an organization who's going to teach you 
how to go to your workplace and unionize your workplace just in a small collective, not going big. Like, like you were saying, if, if you own a small shop, the IWW is a great organization to join and learn how to bring it to that small shop. But let me ask you this, if that's right, what about people who work for larger companies? Because this sounds very practical, but what about uh, some of our listeners who may work for one of these bigger companies? Like me, for example, I'm not going to name my employer. Come on. <laughs> no way. But <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, but, you know, people that are more in my shoes that do work for larger employees that most people know by name that make a point to kind of keep their employees away from even being able to talk to each other like this, especially in the COVID-19 world where we're basically all working via satellite anyway. You know, is the IWW a good fit for that? Is there a path to unionization that way? Go ahead, bye. Yeah, so I work at a large employer. In fact, in my county, it's the largest employer in the county. Our bargaining unit's about 650, or well, over 650 workers. We are an established union, but I'm going to say a little antidote, and I think it applies to um, how we would organize in the IWW as well. But uh, I had an experience where, I mean, I'm a custodian, had an entire building to clean, multiple buildings to clean sometimes. And it's very, very difficult. You have to have it done, most of your vacuuming and stuff like that. It's not really important, but you usually have to have it done before people come in. To that building. Well, I had a problem where all of my vacuum cleaners were old as hell. You know, they needed refurbished and everything like that. Of course, the university, they're getting the crappiest implements that we could possibly get. And everything was breaking down. You know, we were sharing, you know, organically workers in my area would share, you know, tools and equipment or go over to each other's buildings and help each other out. But one time, I remember specifically and distinctly, and this exhibits kind of like the power of an IWW type of organizing model, just something simple. I said to my boss, hey, you know, could I get a new vacuum cleaner? It would be really cool. And could I get one where the deck is a lot bigger by maybe about six more inches than the small one that I have? And he said, well, I'll try. Well, what did we ended up doing? I go into, you know, the big boss's uh, office on the other side of the campus on my workplace, and I walk in, and what do I see? I see seven other sisters and brothers from my union standing there already before I came in, and we intimidated the hell out of the boss. The boss had no idea that we are all going to show up. I didn't know that they were going to show up, but they came out of solidarity for me, and I got the vacuum cleaner the next day, right? Because they already had one. They just didn't want to give it to me <laughs> or anyone else. But... um that's kind of something very, very simple, right? I needed a vacuum cleaner that was bigger and that worked well. Workers got together, organized. We walked in the boss's office and said, hey, can we get some better implements? And it got done. And, and then also, I just wanted to touch on the point that, yeah, we are no better than anyone else. People are going to have complicated and confusing points of view that's going to be difficult, especially in a large workplace, that are going to be difficult for you. A lot of people are debilitated by this. They don't know how to react or they end up in a confrontation of some sort. That is a problem. You got to understand where people are. You got to understand that uh, if it comes between a progressive liberal, right, that is an owner of a business and maybe a more reactionary working class person that is maybe a little ignorant about social issues, I'm going to go on that person's side every single time, right? If that's what it comes down to, I'm never going to take the side of the boss, no matter how progressive they are. But at the same time, we also can't have this imaginary idea that we can export all the duties onto a professional union organizer and not to equip ourselves, right, with those skills. The IWW always emphasizes it is you and your co workers, right? Uh, we have people that can help you out, but you know, it's your baby, you got to take care of it and you got to cultivate it and grow it. But yeah, so just generally large workplace, it's going to be complicated, but you got to contend with people where they're at and you got to just something small. If you want something, you know, done, just very, very simple, just get together with your coworkers and just ask the boss very nicely at first. And then afterwards, maybe you can make him real lonely by walking out. If I could also just a little bit of advice for folks in large shops that we would say, 
break it into small sections and you always want to work, especially at the beginning stages, you always work just person to person. And if I was organizing, uh, I did work organize my workplace. Um, <laughs> when you organize your workplace, you talk to someone and you find they're on board and you've got kind of a, an initial agreement after a couple conversations, ask for an introduction, right? Like, do they know anyone else? Do they know anyone else? And, you know, you just kind of like branch off from each individual person and just take your time. It's the classic joke of how do you eat a whale? One bite at a time. You know, as you do that, and I'll be frank with you, it is a process that, you know, takes a long time and it will be longer in, in large shops, but you just break it down, make it manageable, set realistic goals that you can reach within reasonable time frames, And, you know, always allow yourself to be surprised because people will surprise you when you start this process. You have something too, Kyle? Yeah, I just wanted to say very briefly, I brought up a very good point about how the onus is on us to persuade people to join the union in the first place. And that, for me, as a well-known and documented homosexual, that acts as an extension of oftentimes having to deal with some people who maybe are a little like weirded out by gay people. And I've been asked for advice on this before about how to like deal with those sort of like opinions when you're organizing with people. And I think more than anything, like not only seeing like the onus of persuasion being on you, but what I do is I, I trust that the extension of my deeds will be seen at a higher priority than the fact that I'm married to a guy. And that's basically always happened. It's changed a lot of minds and it's never happened quickly. And it's only ever happened through patience and a dedication to knowing that you can make someone's life better by sharing more of yourself with them and doing it in such a way that motivates them toward understanding rather than you know fear or hate or honestly sometimes just disgust it's not as bad as it used to be and you know there's a lot of people who have it a hell of a lot harder than me but at the same time like i was proud to be the person who was known like you don't have to be afraid to send me to the person who one time called someone a name that they shouldn't have because while yeah they shouldn't have done that you know i have the burden of being raised by christians who are actually you know fairly decent christians and so i have to seek understanding, not reconciliation, I don't have to necessarily, but I have to see myself as someone who has the capability and the strength to say, no, you're wrong. And I want to show you why you're wrong. And I want to convince you why I'm right. And I think it's going to make your life better. That's what being in a union is really. And it's also what it means to sort of to be on some kind of a marginalized person in these spaces is like, yeah, sometimes is it fucked up that the responsibility is on queer people to explain our existence? Yeah, that's not fair. But you know, there's a lot of stuff in life that's not fair. And the only thing that I can do is work to make it better instead. And I'm not going to be able to do that unless I convince people that I'm right. And I don't know. Sorry for rambling so much. No, that's fine. It actually makes God, me think it. of a, I just happened to see it today. I saw a Thomas Sankara quote where he said, you know, we don't have the right to say that we're tired of explaining to people. We have to continue to explain to people as revolutionaries because we have to have the confidence to know that they're going to be on our side once we explain it to them. Once they actually understand our position, they will be with us. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. I have no idea what the actual quote said, but it was something along those lines. But I think Thomas Sankara had a lot of good things to say, and I think he's right. And it goes along the lines of what we continually say is that most people already are Marxist. They just don't realize it. And it's up to us to show them that there is an alternative to the hellscape that they're living in and that they've just been indoctrinated for the last five, six decades against that point of view. Did you have something else, Ryan? Okay. How about you, Armando? 
Yeah, I mean, what Kyle is kind of touching on is realistically what it means to be a communist. You know, we have to call out like those reactionary tendencies. We have to be able to, you know, explain our points over and over again, fight against the idea of like liberalism. Liberalism is just us. You know, we all have those innate biases, whether we're aware of it or not, like sitting idly by while fucked up shit is going on. That's pretty much what liberalism is. So as Marxist Leninists, that's pretty much what we need to be constantly like focusing on is calling those out within the workplace, calling those out within our um, movements and basically trying to constantly educate people as well as, you know, better ourselves. That's kind of like the whole concept behind theory is really just, you know, it's not some, <laughs> it's not a way of, uh, you know, grandstanding about how much you've read. It's really just, it's about self-betterment and not circle jerking about how much you've gone and you've read capital by yourself. <laughs> just real shortly off what uh, fellow worker Kyle said, and something that I see what they were talking about happens every day at the workplace, but it comes down to what are your values as an organizer? Are you going to give benefits to folks with qualifications? Like we'll fight for you as long as you believe this thing, this thing, this thing, or you're just going to have to understand that certain gains that you get are going to be applied to everyone. And also some piece of crap people that have really bad opinions at the same time. This type of almost uncompromising care for other workers is something that needs to be, I mean, proliferated throughout the labor movement. There shouldn't be any qualifications. I'm a partisan for the working class in their complete diversity. And uh, we absolutely need to combat reactionary points of view. But when we're like doing something like a collective bargaining agreement, we need to consider also, even if your membership base is voted 50% for Donald Trump, for instance, like minded, uh, you still want to fight for them and get them better working conditions and wages and benefits. Fuck yeah, man. The disgustingness of like reactionary liberalism in this country is just really, really gross. You know, it's something that has to be combated against and pushed back on rather than finding ourselves indulging in it because someone, you know, read a book that we didn't read or something like that. You've got to nip that shit in the bud and we have to move on as a movement for, for all people. Do you have something, Sterling? Yeah, I was just going to uh, simplify again just for our baby leftists. I like to do that. Just to kind of take what Bai had initially said, which I thought was super important and an incredible message, and I just want to make sure it doesn't go over everyone's heads, and please correct me if I get this wrong, but it sounds like one thing you're distinguishing from is the importance of being in a union and winning the small battles too, because I think when we all think of unions, we think of the big, important negotiations and getting everyone a raise across the board, and that's kind of what you picture when you think union, but I think the point Bai was making is there's so much more than that, like even seeing a fellow employer who just should have a better piece of equipment and you can come together to realize that and to fight for that that's a great point of things that you can succeed at even if you don't have the ability to really take control of the whole workforce and take control of attacking the company head-on you can at least in your small little portion of it where you are around these other employees I think the point is just not only focusing on yourself and what you need, but focusing on the needs of your fellow employees, even if it is these small battles. And I, I thought that was powerful. I like that. It's going to start there no matter what. You're not going to start walking into an NLRB you know, negotiation. The way that your union organization campaign starts is when you have demonstrated that you are the kind of person that your coworker, when they don't have anyone else to call and they get a flat tire, they're like, well, shit, who lives close by? Oh, he lives close by. He's nice. It's like, hey, I have a weird question. Just, do you know how to change a tire? It's just like, where are you stuck? Just do it. You know, like, yeah. like <laughs> you stuck. The first way to, <laughs> yeah, like the way to start, like the, there, the incredible point that all of the 
very well spoken co-panelists have brought up is that this is a process. It takes time. It goes beyond just one organizing campaign. If we're taking this seriously, it's we're trying to make it part of our lives in a meaningful and substantive way. And the way to do that is to re-examine the way your relationship to work. Start testing the way that you live in your workplace. Are you taking note of when someone gets fucked over? Did your buddy get taken into the boss's office and it came out and like now you have them alone away from earshot from other people? Like you should probably ask them what happened. Just be there for your coworkers. We honestly, you don't got a choice. Your successful union organizing campaign will start with like, I got a coworker who needs a new piece of equipment and they're not doing it. And they have asked and it didn't work. And I'm the shithead who does two people's jobs so they can't afford to lose me. So I can go in there and just be like, hey, give them the fucking vacuum or whatever. It has to start somewhere. And it starts with you rethinking the way that you sort of exist at work. It's a, a simple but powerful thing. Did you have something, Ryan? Sorry, I thought I saw you raise your hand. He just makes all the good points, man. What am I going to do here? <laughs> <laughs> So we can start to, uh, to wrap it up. I did want to get into one last thing. I just want to ask you guys real quick, the Amazon and Google unions. I know that that's big news for everybody. Um, I know a lot of leftists are rejoicing at it, but I don't know. I tend to be pretty cynical about these things. And I've heard a take from somewhere else that is not what you may think it is at first glance. It's not like it's going to be some kind of watershed event for Amazon and Google that's going to break them up into smaller companies or do anything that's significant for the workers there. But what do you guys think is going on with the union efforts there? Well, uh, that much about the specific campaigns. I, I have a, uh, a brother that works for Amazon and, and uh, he's been keeping up to date. But basically what I want to say is kind of like a principle. And I noticed this with some, you know, I'm not trying to throw mud at anybody, but uh, Trotskyist or, you know, Maoist more left, people that are way more left wing than I am, uh, would ask their <laughs> rank and file workers and unions to vote down union authorization. And I think that that is an absolutely horrible thing to do. Even if the union is going to be very tame in any of the things that it asks for or any of the tactics that it uses, it is on the whole better to do that than to not have one at all. And I absolutely don't believe that you need to have a completely ideologically revolutionary union to make effective demands. Like, so I don't know specifically about the case, but no, I, I would support anyone that's working to uh, organize their workplace in whatever capacity, even if it's not in the you know more militant way that I would want it to be. I like that. Oh yeah, I didn't mean to give the impression that we shouldn't support it. More along the lines of I just first saw the headline, I was really hopeful. I didn't even bother to read the article at the time because I had something else to do, but it said like, Amazon employees are unionizing. And I was like, oh shit, then oh, fuck Jeff Bezos. This is going to be the guillotine. But I have a feeling that that's probably not going to be the case. It's not going to be this crazy. Everyone gets to cut off a piece of Bezos and take yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, we can dream, can't we? But I feel like that's probably not going to be the case. And I've heard uh, a couple other people mention something to that effect. Uh, what'd you have, Ryan? I mean, it's an Amazon facility in Alabama, right? So if we're concerned about like the spread of a kind of like of the working class wanting to take some or at least make some sort of strike against capital. I mean, I'm sorry, but this does move the needle in a direction that I that I want it to be moving in, right? You know, so the Amazon warehouse is you know, more of the classic model, right? They're having an election for their union. Amazon has a hilarious anti-union website up, which if you want a good chuckle, just check it out. It's really funny. Do it without dues, which I don't even know what the fuck that means, but it is hilarious <laughs> subjectively. The second thing I mean, it would be important because this could be something that it will prove that you can form a union with someone we'll probably all end up working for eventually anyway, right? Which is Amazon. And that this can <laughs> work around the country, uh, you know, that you could strike back against this behemoth. 
which there are also loads amount of articles that they are hiring tech firms to do essentially surveil and spy on their workers. I mean, this is very dark, horrible shit that is coming from corporate America because they're afraid of us. The Google situation is a little bit different, right? It is as best as I understand it, it is not seeking any sort of like kind of like formal recognition, but is operating more along the solidarity lines where it says that workers are banding together to express their interests without seeking this classic contract model. And that's also a good thing too, right? It shows that you don't need to be bound by this specific NLRA, NLRB, National Labor Relations Board election style process, right? You can form, in a sense, Groups of like-minded workers who coordinate their actions to affect changes on their jobs. And for a company like Google that does demonstrated evil in the world, you might be able to like curve that back, right? You might be able to like say like, look, we're not on board with this, right? This new decision or this new directive, we've got issues and, you know, God damn it, we want a seat at the table to discuss how this is going to affect us or how this is going to affect our lives. And both of these news stories, I think, have kind of, and hopefully uh, when someone reads these, they'll realize that these things are possible, right? If they can happen at these two massively evil institutions within our society, then they can happen at an institution of capital that I live with every day when I go to work. And I think that that's the kind of key thing we have to take from this. Learn more about it. Educate yourself as best as possible. Sign up with your local IWW, goddammit. Uh, and let's do something <laughs> for the working people in this society. Just very quickly, this is my hot take after, by the way, agreeing with everybody else. I take the pragmatic stance when it comes to not only the expansion of our imagination when it comes to unionization, but also with the like, the contract model doesn't mean that you sign one contract in blood for the rest of your life and then you are bound to that. And you, if you strike your soul, we'll leave yes. your body and you have to go live in a tunnel like a ghoul. Like this is, it's fallout. <laughs> it's, it's not like, but the real point that I want to make, I think the way people are missing the forest for the trees when it comes to the Google union is how the Communication Workers of America, uh, that's the union formerly supporting the Alphabet Workers Union, have been doing solidarity model organizing and how they've done it and they have won it. And in a place that people don't really expect, they have a campaign called Code. It's the campaign to organize digital employees. One of their organizing campaigns was the Voltage Workers United. They worked on a game called Love Struck. It's like a video game essay, like, you know, Ace Attorney or, you know, it's like a story. Um, and they have a bunch of writers who had a really long list of grievances. They organized on the CWA to, you know, give credit where credit is due. This was a bigger union that was showing that they can do the kind of solidarity model organizing that some of the people who were criticizing the way that the Google union has been coming about, that they said that it wouldn't be viable. Well, unfortunately, that's not true because they've done it already. Though the love struck workers walked out and won like wage increases and like all of this other stuff. And so I think there's something to be said about like, oh, am I skeptical? I'm skeptical of literally everything. But at the same time, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we're concerned about the way that a union is being built because we live in the United States and a union is being built. Is that not enough of a fucking miracle in the first place <laughs> to necessitate yeah, a little control and an open mind from those of us who are mainlining this shit 24-7. Anyways, yeah, that's my take. It really puts it on the main stage, too. I mean, with a company that's... Did you have yeah, something, Armando? Yeah, I mean, that's the most important part is we're normalizing unionization. I mean, realistically, if you can get it out there to where, you know, it's getting massive, like, media coverage, especially, like, for something that's happening in the South, um, that's fucking big. <laughs>
Like yeah. we need to normalize that more. We need to get more of that going on, especially down here where, you know, we have all these right to work states. That's, <laughs> to where you know basically it's a right to get fired for any fucking reason that you know <laughs> what i liked most about what kyle was saying is the fact that when you get in and you establish it you're at least normalizing it and everyone's seeing where you succeeded and then you can come back to the table later on and take another crack at it from a different angle but that's obviously superior to just not doing it because it's not perfect yeah no i mean i i guess i probably framed the question wrong i wasn't really saying that Amazon and Google unionizing was not a good thing. I'm sure it, it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I tend to be cynical. And uh, the headline initially made me very hopeful. And then I had seen a couple of the takes saying that it was not going to be quite the death knell for Amazon and Google that I would hope it would be. It won't be a death knell, but that's okay. It's like you, You're right, in a way. Like, what, what I'm going to go personally, Jeff Bezos. Like, I can't, like, we... But yeah, it, yeah, let's do it. Like, it's parody, parody, parody. In my, in, in Minecraft, uh, Call of Duty, Cold War. Um, you, you have to. We have to start somewhere. It's not going to topple Amazon tomorrow. That's true. Guess what? No union is perfect. My union is not perfect. I am perfect, but of course, you know, the, the union. You know, I can't. Like, we're all fucked. We got to work with what we can, and then guess what? The onus is on us to like. If we get our foot in the door, it's like, okay, how do we push this thing further? When you're the union, well, shit, you got to figure out how to do it, right? When you go into a collective bargaining agreement, the first thing, well, we used to before Janice versus AFSCME. Um, listeners should definitely look up uh, the rulings of Janice versus AFSCME. That was our union. But um, before that, we would go into negotiation. The first thing that we'd put on the table, the first article would be a what we call a fair share agreement, meaning that we'd make, basically make this a closed shop. We always expected the employer to look at that for like one second and, of course, like shoot it down, obviously, because that is... Definitely the most threatening thing for any employer is that the entire workplace be uniformly organized and everyone be in the union. Because at that point, the union almost takes, it almost becomes a counter force uh, for the managerial apparatus of the, of the organization of the employer. And so obviously this, this concerted attack against the, uh, against the labor movement that is always operating on either the liberal left or in the far right, uh, something like Janice versus Ask Me or the Taft-Hartley Act, they're always going to punch against that closed shop idea. And so <laughs> you realize that all these sort of demands, you know, a $3 raise, for instance, is pretty insane, <laughs> frankly, if you're going to collect a bargaining agreement, but it's possible. But any of those big demands that you imagine a union could win for you have to have almost near 100% unionization rate in your workplace. And that's when the power dynamic is not completely shifted. It's definitely not equal, but the scales are starting to tip in your favor at that point. Um, but if you don't have that, they're, they're just going to laugh at you. I just wanted to mention that is union unionization rate in a conventional business union is the end all be all of what you're going to gain because there's only certain amounts of rules. There's a certain set of rules that you have to follow, certain parameters that you have to follow and you can't deviate. The IWW model in a smaller shop um, or even IWW model in a bigger shop, it's going to win you things that you would never even dream of, but you're going to have to work a little bit harder for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is a good point. And it's really kind of... Um... I guess kind of a catch that comes along with unionization is you could be unionized, but if it's only a portion of your workplace, they could easily just fire all the people who have started to unionize. I mean, it's not unprecedented. There have been entire branches of franchises. You know, um, I think there's been examples of Walmarts or Whole Foods where they just, when faced with that branch unionizing, they just fired everyone there and shut down that location because it was cheaper for them in the long run to lose an entire store than to have to deal with unionized employees. But that also gives people yeah, an idea of how much of a threat unionization actually is to a company and how much power you have when you do it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, we're actually, I was going to say what Armando made me think of is that we probably should have spent a little time on right to work laws and right to work states because he mentioned that it completely slipped my mind, you know, and living in a right to work state myself, I know how shitty that is. And right to work just means right to be fired for any fucking reason that your boss deems at any given time. Well, um, I, I would love to um, be a labor law nerd and uh, talk about very briefly right to work and at will employment doctrine. Right to work is legislation that means that it is not mandatory. If you go and get a job at a place that has a bargained contract, you do not have to then pay dues and sign up for the union. It used to be a thing that you'd have to do. Right to work is predicated on the idea that someone can say, I don't want to be in the union. I don't want to pay dues. What it is, is it's a right to freeload, to be completely honest, because yeah. basically it's a right to a union contract without paying dues, without supporting the organization. At will employment doctrine, which is something that people talk about plenty, but we need to talk about more, is the way that the vast majority of, I think, 47 or something out of 50 states in the United States, that number could be wrong. The way that those states understand the legal relationship between an employer and their employee. At will employment doctrine is the way that you can be fired for reasons that they don't need to disclose to you or reasons that could actually end up being like them getting back at you for doing worker shit, for doing, you know, union organizing and that sort of a thing. The at-will employment doctrine is the poison that has seeped through our workplaces in the United States. And it's because it says that when you go get a job, you enter into an agreement with your employer that either one of you can terminate that relationship at any time of your choosing. So... <laughs> and which one of you is most likely to terminate it? Well, you know, that's freedom, baby. That's, that's freedom exactly. in America. <laughs> well, see, y'all just, I just rambled on for a long time and you summed up the point in a line. Like, that's the point. It's not like Sorry. right to work. It's not fair. It's predicated on the idea that this is an equal power dynamic, that this is an equal relationship, which is just like me, the person who made $8 an hour in 2012 has the same amount of power as the like guy who has $2.5 million in two jet ski dealerships. Like, give me a fucking break. No, <laughs> we are not the same. But anyways. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what it comes down to is like people just don't understand the ideas behind power dynamics. And, you know, talk to any fucking cringy teenage libertarian who thinks that contracts are the way to do everything. And they think that employer contracts are the be all and end all. And they don't take into account any relationship of the power that an employer has over the power that an employee does not have. You know, they yeah. want a worker. You need a job. Like you cannot survive if you don't make some profit for your employer and get a little pittance of that profit that you're making for them to live off of. They don't need you. They can easily find somebody else. And that's the situation that we're in. And, you know, I could go on all day about why libertarians are fucking cringy, but... <laughs> It kind of just because I love making little random analogies that may or may not even actually hit. But it sounds like to me, if I saw uh, two people fighting and I, I was like a cop and one of them had a gun on their hip and I just walked up and said, okay, legally, both of you are allowed to shoot each other right now to settle this. And then the other guy just doesn't even have a gun. He's like, well, that, that's great that it's legal, you know? but yeah. this is about to go yeah. real fucking bad. For that's me, actually bro. really good. That actually worked really well. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, so let's start to wrap it up there. I do want to uh, ask you guys if you want to plug anything. If you guys, obviously, we're going to refer everyone to the IWW, and you said it's what, IWW.org? That's correct. Okay, cool. Do you guys uh, want to plug anything individually? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, I'm going to plug the uh, IWW as well as you know, I'm uh, definitely a member of the uh, Florida chapter of Party of Communists in the United States. And our website's uh, Party of Communists USA dot uh, org. Obviously, check us out. Uh, honestly, like I've said previously, the most important thing is just get involved, whether it's with a labor union, you know, the labor movement as a whole, you know, leftist organizations, whatever it is, like get out there and get involved. That's the most important thing that I could tell you today. How about you, Bob? You want to plug anything? Well, I just echo what Comrade Armando said, obviously. Um, but I want to mention, if you're in a workplace that is already organized, join that union and then immediately join the IWW and hook up with your uh, local GMB or your local industrial branch um, as soon as possible. Be a dual carter and uh, agitate and teach the militancy of the IWW and your business union. Anything that benefits the working class is going to help, obviously, everybody, even if it's like not in uh, the IWW specifically. If you help the working class in another union or another workplace, it's going to help the IWW ultimately in the end and anyone who sees themselves in the labor movement. Uh, yeah, also join the Party of Communists. Kyle, do you have anything you want to plug? Sure. Just first and foremost, the Central Florida Industrial Workers of the World, who were on uh, social medias. Um, we're not active on all of or many of those pages, but we are monitoring them. Uh, and so if you're sending DMs, you're getting messages back. Um, we also have an email address, iwwcfl at gmail.com. If you're in the Central Florida or in Florida at all or really anywhere, you have questions, but more than anything, if you need to place an organizing inquiry with the IWW, you have questions about something that's happening in your workplace, or you want to start roll, getting the ball rolling, so to speak, go to iww.org organize. And on that page, there should be an organizing inquiry form to where you can just fill out some simple information. Someone will reach out and get in contact with you. That's the important part. And the sappy bit is if anyone is listening and you have been having some trouble at work Every, everything from just you know things just you know you're not getting paid as much or the really heavier stuff which is you know like workplace sexual harassment and discrimination which you know solidarity you know there are many of us who have been through all of these things um and it's part of the reason why we're here i just want to let you know that you're not alone even though it feels like it and i want to let you know that I, I understand what it's like to feel very lonely and to be constantly surrounded by people <laughs> and how alienating and confusing and how like how that oftentimes like we have a tendency to blame ourselves for our for things that are often you know contingent upon larger more heavy circumstances and the struggles in your life not only are they not your fault um, but they're not insurmountable you have the means to overcome some of these issues and the most special part about it is it's you you come to these issues by virtue of being a worker. First of all, welcome. We're glad you're here. And second of all, we take upon ourselves as labor organizers the burdens of others. And we do so with not only not asking for things in return, but with an acknowledgement that bettering the life of somebody else makes me better and it makes the world better. And to quote Sarah Nelson, it's a demonstration that solidarity is a force stronger than gravity. There's nothing more powerful than being willing to stand up for someone that you haven't been told to. There's something powerful and motivating about realizing that I have the means within myself to make great change in my community. And that's just true. And now I have a responsibility to figure out what that means for me. This is a really practical way to do it. And if you're scared to reach out to the IWW because it seems fucking weird or whatever, you can reach out to our branch. We'll walk you through it. Like, what else are we going to do here? It's just tough. We have to take care of each other. We have to look out for each other. There is no other choice. There is no alternative. This is our path forward. 
it's an acknowledgement that we need each other. And look, I stepped on this soapbox and didn't even notice. I'm so sorry, everybody. No, it's totally fine. I was just distracted with Armando. It's so good that he's able to mute himself because he twitches even more than Sterling. Like, I thought Sterling was bad with messing with stuff on his desk. Like, holy Dude, was, shit, Armando. Holy was, shit. <laughs> he has the ADD that I wish I could unleash. Like, that's what I have in my heart, but I hold it back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all good though. Okay, so um, Bye, did you remember what you had? I just wanted to mention in closing and using kind of a, a little story or example. I know so many folks at my workplace and people outside of my workplace in my community that have worked a job for 35 years. They, you know, they haven't asked for hardly anything a day of their lives. They, uh, they tell me when I, when I go up to say, hey, you know, we should, we need to get together. We need to address some problems at the workplace. We need to address this these dismal wages, these poverty wages we're getting paid. And they'll come up to me and say, look, I believe in all those things, but I'm just a humble custodian, for instance. I'm a humble custodian. I've been a custodian for 35 years. There's no other possibility for me. There's nothing left for me. I'm going to be relegated to working poverty wage job uh, my entire life. I don't have value in this world because we tend to show, obviously, our meaning in this life by the numbers in our bank account, the amount of money in our bank account. And what I tell them, I say, when you go into work and the floor is waxed, you know, you strip the floor, you wax the floor, you go in and you see that. And you know when people, our customers are coming in and they see that beautiful sheen on that floor, it almost looks like you, could, you would slip on it as soon as you stepped on it. That is your power. That's something you can be proud of. That was your labor. You did that. The boss, uh, the owner of the company, you know, they're going to kill themselves by changing a tire, you know, or anything. Scrubbing a toilet would kill them. You as a worker, and the, I want to tell this to the listeners, you as a worker, you're very, very powerful. You should be proud of the work that you do, no matter what kind of work you do. It's all necessary. It's all valuable. And, uh, and, and absolutely echoing what uh, Comrade Kyle just said, yeah, let's, let's just get together. Let's just talk about things in an honest, simple way, and, uh, and let's, let's organize for liberation of us all, you know, uh, for the least of these. No, that's good. That's a very good message. No such thing as unskilled labor. Yep. Unless you're a boss. <laughs> <laughs> or a landlord or a cop. Uh, let's go with you, Kyle. Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I'll plug the IWW, the Central Florida branch of the IWW. I'll plug industrial unionism. I'll plug contradiction and people's war. Um, I'll plug early Aerosmith albums. And um, <laughs> uh, this, which is uh, filled with a group of uh, awesome people. So thanks for having us. Dude, thank you guys for coming on. This was a lot of fun, man. Uh, Sterling, we'll plug your Twitter. That is uh, Turn Left is Pod. Sterling's running the Twitter for us. Always killing it on there. Anything else you got going on? You want to plug Sterling? The only thing I'll mention, uh, just for our listeners, you know, I went ahead and pulled up the IWW.org page, you know, to check out what the uh, membership fees were. And I mean, they're extremely realistic. I mean, beyond. So I, I had a number in mind and it's way below that. Like, it looks like it starts at six. And your most common ones are going to be 11 and $22. I mean, literally nothing for the service. I'm sure none of you guys are, are regretting that uh, 11 or $22, correct? <laughs> Could have had an Xbox, though. <laughs> How much are those new PS5s going for right now? Oof. About 11 or $22, right? <laughs> well, then, um, yeah, I guess I'll just plug. I don't think we even plugged anything last episode. I think we forgot to, like, do any of that shit because we were just so mesmerized by Chris Halali and his uh, charisma. <laughs> But uh, let me just run through some of the plugs from our, you know, just our regular hosts that we have that aren't here with us tonight. For Cosper, I forgot to plug his Twitch the last time. I feel terrible about it. Let's plug Cosper's Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash 
Cosper, C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. And then uh, for Ward, his Instagram is Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y, and his backup millennial leftist. And Jaron will plug his website. That's J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. Check out our Patreon. We started up a Patreon that's Turn Leftist and pick up some of the t-shirts that we have. We still have a few left. Uh, we may not by the time this comes out. I don't know. We're recording this one way ahead of time, like even more than usual. Check us out on Instagram and all the uh, socials and hit us up. Send us a DM. Give us a good review on iTunes or the other podcast platforms. And that's about it. Thank you guys. I really want to thank you guys for doing this. This was a lot of fun. And we had a lot of really good info that we're going to get out to our listeners. I hope that everyone is at least you know, pumped to join a union if they're not able to. But for the love of God, I hope they find a way to either get into a union at their current job or find a job where they can get into a union because it is incredibly important. And if you don't want to end up in the future of, uh, I don't know, what was that movie with the blue people? Avatar? Yeah. If you don't want to end up in that future... Or fucking uh, Ready oh, Player okay, One. Okay, I'm connecting it. I was like, where are you going with this? But yeah, I get it. No, I mean, I'm just trying to think of like, that's the message that I got from like Ready Player One yeah. and Avatar. They're like realistic dystopias that almost don't seem like dystopias, but they fucking are, man. Like it's not a good future to be in. And if you don't want to be there, you have to actually organize and you have to be in solidarity with workers and you have to resist that future because it's making itself in front of our eyes. So we got to do something about it. So thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Awesome having you, comrades. Definitely, let's do this again soon. Absolutely. <laughs> Very well, nice having all of us. Apologies for my rambles. It's early in the semester, so <laughs> talk all the time. And yeah, that's all good, man. Shout out to all the comrades with ADHD. <laughs> Diagnosed and medicated. <laughs> <laughs> medicated not so much, but yeah. <laughs> same, same. Solidarity. Real. All right, Bye take all. it easy, guys. Yeah. Thank you, comrades. Good night. Good night, comrades.